in our sort of like popular theology, pop theology, if you will, uh, we have viewed our existence in two different stages. Uh, one is life, uh, and one is life after death. So life, the life we live here and now, and then what we know is life after death is heaven, or going to heaven when we die. And so just kind of a pop-level theology that we either on purpose or accidentally believe we discovered is not biblical, that there's two stages to your existence, life and then heaven, or life and then life after death. And what we discovered last week, working through Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is that life, your existence, actually occupies three different stages. And you can put those up, Hallie, three different stages, which is life, the present life you are living here and now, right? So you live, you have kids, you get married, you get a job, you go to school, all the things that happen in life, things are not as they should be, right? There's something missing, there's something out of sync or out of alignment, there's sickness, there is war, there's a lack of peace, a lack of unity, there's a lack of being in sync with how God created this world, and then you die. So you live your life, and then you die. That is one phase, one stage of our existence, if you will. And the Bible actually lets us sit on the second phase, which is what many of us have confused, which is life after death, or what we know as heaven. Right? So heaven is where body and soul separates, and our soul or our spirit is with God in what the scriptures describe as the heavens. Right? And our purpose while we are there is to wait and pray. Wait and pray. The picture we get from Revelations chapter 5 and 6 is that of those who have passed away already with God in spirit, not in body, in spirit, eagerly awaiting something else. You're not on a cloud forever and ever. You are with God in what scripture describes as the heavens until something happens which is the turning point between stage two and stage three, which is life after, life after death. And that turning point is the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes and actually resurrects the physical bodies of those that follow him, and we don't depart to some place in outer space, but we actually, our souls and bodies are united, and we live here on the new earth, the new creation, in eternity, with God, the way we were meant to be, perfectly formed in the image that he had intended for us. So much of the Bible that describes what happens after we die is describing that season, that kind of eternity, not like up you know, soul separated from body in the clouds or whatever. But what happens when Jesus returns, resurrects those that follow him, and we live forever with him in the new creation? Most of what scripture says about what happens after you die is about that time right there. In the Bible, that God future is never called heaven. That is something altogether different. In the Bible, different writers have called it different things. Isaiah has called it the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus has called it the renewal of all things. John has called it eternal life. Paul has called it the age to come and the kingdom of God. And Peter, one of my favorite definitions, Peter calls that time the time for God to restore everything. 
the time when God actually renews and restores all of creation back to the way it was meant to be. And in the scripture, the focus is all about what happens after heaven. And it's crucial to grasp that biblical story for what happens after we die because, as we unpacked last week, what we believe about the future shapes how we live here and now. If you have no view, no theology, or a weak view or a weak theology of what happens after you die, that shapes how you live. If we have a robust understanding of the kind of forever life Jesus is calling us into, that shapes how you live here and now. And I would argue that shapes a more exciting and fulfilled life here and now. Jesus describes life and life to the full. And what Paul unpacks in the text that we're in today is the hope of the resurrection is found not only in eternal life, but in an eternal life that thrives. And it's something Paul doesn't want us to miss. That we live forever with God in the new creation is good and fine, but he wants us to understand it is infinitely and supremely better than anything we can ever experience here on this earth. We get shadows, we get glimpses of it here now as we lean into the way of Jesus and out of the way of this world, but in its full, life together with God forever is so much better. So much better than anything we experience here and now. The Corinthians seem to be missing this, so Paul sees it as fit to like drill in deeper into what this is like. And maybe the same situation is for you and I, where we say, okay, I'm on board with what the Bible says about what happens after we die, but is it really that good? Because life is pretty good here in Ventura. We have the best craft brew. Sorry, San Diego. We have amazing tacos. We have third wave coffee. Like life is good here and now. Life, Paul wants us to get, is so much better with him in that God future that he intends for you and I. And he's just got done unpacking all of this and correcting bad theology. And then he predicts a question that they might have. And this is where he needs to drive in deeper. And this is what brings us to our text today. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, Paul says, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Which to me kind of seems like a fair question, right? Paul just unpacks this like our actual bodies are going to be reunited with our souls to live in new creation forever. Am I going to be in better shape in new creation than I am right now? Like am, am I going to like all the chin fat that I hide with my beard, is that still going to be there? Like what kind of bodies do we, I think this is kind of a fair question uh, that the Corinthians may be having. But remember this question that Paul assumes they'll have is rooted in the worldview that occupies their mind. So the church in Corinth would have had the de facto worldview of the Greeks. So Plato, Socrates, which basically can be summed up in there are two like ways you exist currently, like the, the mind and the body, or the, the spiritual and the physical, or the tangible and the non-tangible. And, and the really short version of this worldview is everything that is physical is bad. It's decaying, it's not good, it's, it's sinful, it's impure, it, all, your, all your fleshly kind of desires are awful and bad, and so we should try to be as the most detached from our physical state as possible because everything that's non-tangible, non-physical is good, it's desirable. This is the worldview of the Greeks at the time, it's the worldview of the Corinthian church at the time, 
I, it's the worldview of our like, default Western culture now, which has been show, so shaped by Greek thinking and worldview and culture, that there is a sense in which like, our bodies are bad and the spiritual things are good. And Paul does something really interesting here. He refutes that kind of worldview, elevates the physical as something that is good. It has been created by God. Yes, it's fractured and not the way it's supposed to be, but that doesn't mean God just scraps it at the end. He's on about a different story. It's not everything is going to burn and then our spirits escape. God is actually restoring and renewing everything he created in the first place. And the Corinthians might have this question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body? Because to them, the body is bad. And the soul or the spirit and separating from the body is the good thing. It is the ultimate eternal life. And Paul says that's actually not what's going on here. The ultimate eternal life is not your body and your spirit separated for all time. So you can finally do away with all that bad physical stuff. Paul lays out a different kind of theology here. Let's pick it up in verse 36. And he responds to this hypothetical question, in my opinion, a bit unfairly, because the closest thing we can get to in the Greek with verse 36, uh, where he says, you foolish person, is uh, you're dumb. (laughs) Stupid. That's literally like the, the slang Greek word Paul would have used here is like, idiots. Why would you even ask this kind of question? He assumes a kind of knowledge that's being like revealed that they don't have as he asks that hypothetical question. He says, if this is your question, if your thinking is the body is bad and the spirit is good and you have no idea how a new kind of body is going to intersect with that, you're an idiot because you're missing the entire point. You're missing the whole story of creation. You're missing the overarching story of God that when God created something in Genesis 1, he called it good. And he's not scrapping that. He's restoring it and he's renewing it. And that includes your and my bodies as well. And he uses this analogy around farming here in verse 36. He says, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Strange analogy here. I know this is supposed to help us understand the point more and has maybe distanced us a bit more. Let me unpack what he's getting at here. Do you guys remember some of the first fruits language from last week? He's bringing about that same analogy to drive in his, his point here. And he says, a seed or something you sow goes into the ground. The seed essentially dies and becomes something else, right? It dies, it's buried, but in time, it comes back out of the ground, but it comes back different. It doesn't come back just another seed, right? It comes back fully transformed into the plant, the fruit, or the grain, or whatever it is that it was meant to be. So I told you about my neighbor who's doing all this gardening and stuff, um, and for whom we reap the benefits of all their gardening, so we get local veggies all the time. And they planted a bunch of stuff, like some leeks, some uh, cauliflower, some other things, and they had to put what in the ground to get those plants? Well done. Okay, good. I know we're not farmers in the room, but we can get the gardening 101 basic. They put seeds into the ground. What comes out of the ground are not seeds. Have you ever seen that before? They're not seeds. Now, embedded in the plant may be seeds of something else, but what comes out of the ground is something wholly different. 
when he plants those tomato plants, tomato seeds aren't coming up. The fruit, the actual, the vine, the plant itself is going to come out. It's going to bear fruit. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit because there are seeds in the fruit. We're not getting into that. The point is, when you put seeds into the ground, they don't come out as seeds. They come out as something wholly changed and transformed. Related, but not the same. And what Paul's doing is he's making the point that in our resurrected bodies, there will be continuity and discontinuity in that. It'll be related. The same raw materials are there, but it's going to be different. There's elements of who you are now that get carried over into who you are forever. But not all of, not everything. Because we know this, this world and our time is imperfect. We are imperfect. Like in our posture and our attitude and our behavior and our like physical bodies. We're not all perfect. Like Tommy. Tommy is a perfect physical spe- specimen. We're all lacking. But in new creation, Paul says, some, some of that carries over, but it actually carries over in the way you were meant to be. In your attitude, in your posture, in your physicality, you will be the way God intended you to be at the beginning. So continuity, it's the same you, the same raw materials, but there's discontinuity because it's you in the fullest form. It's totally transformed, totally been reformed into what was intended. Verse 39, he continues to kind of draw out the farming thing and the animal thing. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Right? He's getting at the idea that there are all sorts of bodies for different contexts. So he's trying to like say, hey, logically we can agree. There are different kinds of bodies for different contexts. They have different purposes and they're in different environments. You cannot survive without a habitat in the Arctic. You can't do it. But there are animals who can. You can't fly. But there are animals who can. There are different bodies for different contexts. He says, look around you. You're used to the idea of all these different forms of flesh to live in different places. And he says, in the same way, verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So, so far here, what we start to get in these couple of verses is Paul is echoing and mirroring what's happening in Genesis chapter 1. Don't miss out on this thread here as Paul is talking about resurrection and resurrected life. He's not talking about erasing the past and starting fresh. He's talking about a new creation, a new garden, a new Genesis. When God created everything and it was good, and then very quickly we messed things up, he is going on about restoring and redeeming everything back to the way it should have been. And what he does is he makes this point, as with Jesus' resurrection, so with ours, this won't be some strange distortion of who we are now, but the very thing we were made for in the first place. That's what Paul wants to run towards. He wants to run away from the idea that God just erases everything and we all start fresh, so we're all like seven-foot-tall Swedish bodybuilders. Like, that's not what's going to be happening. But he wants to say is, Paul's trying to get at is, the way God created things was good. He's not doing away with all of that. He's redeeming and restoring all of that back to the way it should have been. And so resurrection means day by day, as we follow Jesus, we are becoming who we are. 
We are walking in sanctification and obedience and being refined to be more like Jesus and less like the world around us has shaped us to be. More into our intended image. We are becoming who we are. God will finish what he started in the garden. And in the process, he'll reverse and undo all the effects of human failure and sin and even death itself. He picks up in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Just like not all flesh are the same, there are differences between the earthly and heavenly bodies. They're related, but they're different. There's continuity, but discontinuity. And the point is, to live in God's new world, you need a body that can live in God's new world. And your kind of body right now is not going to cut it. There are some changes that needs to happen. And what Paul does is he lays out four differences in the kind of body we will have in that God future than what we have right now. Those four differences, starting in verse 42, what is sown, remember the seed that's in the ground? So he's continuing that in. So it's put into the ground. What ultimately dies and gets buried is perishable. And what is raised is imperishable. So perishable, it dies, it runs out, it's done. As healthy as you are, as much of a vegan as you are, as much as you go to the gym, you're dying. That's it. Eventually, you will all die. Welcome to Anthem. We like to just build you up here and encourage you. But it doesn't matter how healthy or unhealthy you are, you will die. Your body will not go on forever as it is right now. But what is raised or what is resurrected is imperishable. It does not die. Your resurrected body goes on forever. Second difference, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. In dishonor. This is a bit of a puzzling one. Unless you've watched someone die. A couple of years ago, my Nana passed away, uh, my mom's mom, and she had Alzheimer's and, and a bunch of strokes and and what we saw for the last 10 years of her life was a slow degradation of who she was. It was dishonorable to what I knew of my Nana. It was not who she was. And, and even my younger siblings don't remember a life of her and her fullness and her joy and her presence and her, to use Paul's language, honor. On the way to the grave is dishonorable. We, it's painful to watch someone we know who had so much vibrance and life wither away. It's inevitable, but it doesn't make it any easier. Watching people die is watching them become slowly out of sync with their own nature. But that's not the end. Because it's raised or resurrected in glory. When the body is raised, and it's, it's as it's as God intended, in honor, in its perfect form, the way it's supposed to be, so it's raised in glory, fully reflecting Jesus, fully reflecting our maker, the way it was supposed to be. Because we know in this time and in this place, things are not the way it should be, including you and I. And that will end, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is we're raised in glory and with him forever in new creation. 
A third difference, it's sown in weakness. Our, our physical, perishable, dishonorable bodies are sowed in weakness and it is raised in power. So our bodies now are lacking and over time we get weaker. Do you guys know, I read, I don't know if, I, I think this is accurate. Some of you health nerds in the room can help me out that your body peaks at age 25. Do you guys know that? Yeah, oh no, exactly. And then it's just the slow descent downhill. And when you were 25, you were eating garbage food and you weren't working out. And now that you're in your 30s, you're like trying to be healthy and you're working out, but it's a losing battle ultimately. Our bodies are weak. We go into the grave weak. But that's not how it stays. That's not the end of the story because we are raised in power, boundless energy. I think of those days when we wake up and we're ready to charge the world. Like once out of the year, once every two years, if you have kids, you like wake up and just a burst of energy and you're like, I'm ready to take this day. Like your, your eyes are huge. You're in wonder at what God may do. You're full of life, full of energy. That is every day in new creation. We are full of energy, full of life, ready to partner with God in whatever he's asking of us raised in power. And verse 44 has last contrast. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now for, for Paul, these two words have meaning. If you've been tracking with this in 1 Corinthians, you, you get some of the weight and meaningness to this. So this is not just a physical, non-physical distinction, right? So it's not physical and then the abstract spiritual stuff. When Paul says natural, what he means here is not only the physical, but literally all of you that is animated by breath. Or the, the Greek word is like soul-ish. You're animated by the, the things that can only be sustained here. And when he talks about the spiritual person, you no longer are animated by breath, but you are animated by the spirit of God. That's your life force. That's what's pumping through your veins, not oxygen, but the Holy Spirit. And he calls us into that life now, but in that life forever, we are perfectly animated by the Spirit. And he says, the body you have right now is animated by the flesh, animated by breath. The body that will come will be fully and perfectly animated by God's own Spirit. And Paul gets at this idea in a, in a little bit more straightforward way in his letter to the Romans. So you can flip over if you want to Romans chapter 8 or just look on the screens here. But he says to the Romans, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you, animating you. And in that God future, that new creation, that is happening fully and perfectly 100% of the time. The spirit of Jesus, the Messiah, dwells within you at the moment. And God will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives inside you into all eternity. He says, if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, and he starts a new thought here, so watch where he goes with this. The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last became a life-giving spirit. 
So remember from, from last week and what Paul's already done before, when he says the last Adam, who does he mean here? Jesus, thank you. Okay, last Adam is Jesus here. Paul's already unpacked this idea a bit uh, in verses 21 and 22, real quick, where he says, for by a man came death. He's talking about Adam. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus, so Adam and Jesus parallel. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Same idea he's getting at right here. His point is first you get Adam, who inaugurated your healthy or your earthly bodies, if you will, but also inaugurated sin and death into this world. And then you get Jesus, who resurrects that body, who brings about perfect union with God. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. Real quick, because of all the work we did on heaven last year, when he speaks of the earthly humanity and the heavenly humanity, he doesn't mean that we will go to heaven when we die. That's not the idea he's getting at here. What he is getting at is we won't go to heaven to be the new type. Rather, God will bring this new humanity, our new bodies, from heaven to earth, transforming your present bodies of all Christians who are still alive and raising the dead to the same kind of renewed, deathless, glorious, powerful, imperishable body. So a better way to maybe look at or think about that verse or even translate that last verse is the first man was dusty. He's from the dust, from the earth. And the second man is heavenly, of the qualities like those who commune with God. Adam's body was from the dust of the earth. Jesus' resurrection body is heavenly. So not otherworldly or the place you go when you die, Lee, but in full sync with who God is and who God has intended him to be. Verse 48, as was the man of dust who is... Man of dust? Adam. There you go. Okay. I tricked you right there. So also those who are of the dust, which is who? Us. Yeah, all humanity. Well done. You guys are doing great. And as is the man of heaven, who's that? Jesus. Well done. So also those who are of heaven, who's this? Us, asterisks, all who follow Jesus. All who are with Jesus all who pattern their lives after Jesus and who are resurrected. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, which is who? Adam. Okay, good job. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, which is who? Okay, this is why I'm doing this. It's kind of a confusing couple of verses we're getting through here. Paul's point is right now you look like Adam. You look like a human, each and every one of you. You look like a human. You're perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural. Love you guys. One day, those who follow Jesus will have a body like Jesus in the shape that God intended. Powerful, imperishable, glorious, spiritual, literally animated by the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the hope set before us. When we say there's more to life than this, that's what we mean. When we say we are looking towards a better future, this is what we mean. A life and an eternity where everything is as it should be, including you. 
This hope is based entirely on the reality that Jesus himself, Jesus himself, the long-awaited Messiah, already possesses this new body because he has already been resurrected. He is the man from heaven, and as we have been born into these present earthly human bodies, the old corruptible humanity, so we shall bear the image of Jesus himself when he resurrects us. Even though everything in our world seems to conspire against this reality, the truth is Jesus has been raised and resurrected, and so will you. Our new bodies, imperishable, in glory, in power, fully animated by the very Spirit of God. And all Paul's talk of resurrection, it's all about becoming like Jesus. He has already been resurrected, and this is your future if you follow Jesus. And so everything about our life is orientated towards that future. What we believe about that future shapes how we live now. If we believe, we, just like Jesus, will be raised redeemed, our bodies redeemed and restored and renewed that shapes how we live now, that shapes the decisions we make right now. It shapes everything about our lives right now, having the end, according to Paul, the right end in mind. As followers or apprentices of Jesus, our aim is to be with him, to become like him and to do what he did. And that includes resurrection. And that includes the resurrection life that comes after. And last week, we kind of ended our time really unpacking the idea that there are two ways to engage your existence. Two ways to process how we live in light of this future. One of them is escapism, right? Everything's going to burn anyway, so who cares what happens? Like, what I do here now has no implication on my life then. So torch it all, I'm done. Or engagement, that we know God is actually not scrapping everything, but renewing and restoring and redeeming everything. So we join him in the future and here and now in partnership with him in renewing everything. Bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We actually join with him now in engagement. So what you believe about the future shapes how you live. If you believe some escapism tale about the future, that will shape the decisions you make here and now. Why not, as Paul says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Why not live your life to the full, experience every pleasure there is, experience every comfort there is, every joy there is here and now on earth, because the the clock is ticking and you're going to die one day, and this is it. How often do you live like this is it? If I were to look at your calendar or your bank account or how you talk with your kids or your coworkers, are you living like this is it? Are you living like this is the end? Like you got to squeeze everything out of these 80, 90, 100 years and then you can throw your hands off. Or are you living with a sense of engagement, knowing that the life Jesus is calling you into for all eternity starts now? The things we do here and now prepare us for life with him. We can practice heavenly living, new creation living here and now. We can get ready for that because there are things that carry over into the new life.
you are one of those things that carry over into the new life. Is new creation going to be a big adjustment for you? Are you spending a lifetime aligning yourself to the reality of the kingdom of God? I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions we all have in that God future life that he has. What I don't want is I don't want to show up there and be like, everything I knew about this was totally off. I was in no way prepared. I don't like what I see. I don't want to get to new creation and not like it. I want to spend a lifetime aligning myself to that kingdom economy, those kingdom values, so that when I'm there, I'm like, finally, I can taste it in my mouth. This is what I've been waiting for. The reality is you are already called holy and blameless, yet you are being formed daily into the image of Christ to be holy and blameless. Not only are our souls, but our bodies will join in the resurrection and be formed into the image of Jesus. The visible parts of you should look like Christ if the invisible parts of you are in union with Christ. It's not a mind-body separation thing. What you believe should shape how you live. And the promise of the New Testament, just like the seed going into the ground, is nothing short of full-on transformation. Full-on. Here and now. Yes, then, but also here and now. And as the seed goes into the ground, it comes out something related. The raw material is still there, but wholly transformed, wholly changed. So it is with you. The invitation of the New Testament is to become the kind of person you will be forever. Paul says to his next letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this, and we all with unveiled face, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. We are being transformed. Throughout the Scripture, particularly the New Testament, we find that transformation, or growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in the likeness of our future resurrection self, is not only the goal, but it's the expectation of all who follow Jesus. And it's not something that happens later. It's something that happens now. The reality, though, is that is not inevitable. It's not inevitable that you are being shaped into the likeness of Jesus. You're not on autopilot for the next 50 years of your life. This kind of life, resurrection life, takes a few things. It takes power, participation, and practice. It takes power because we need his spirit to do this work in us. He has the power to do this. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. To do the impossible, to take our brokenness and turn it into something, as Paul says, glorious, powerful, honorable, and imperishable. We need his power to do that. And he writes to the Romans, like I shared earlier, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. It's his power, not yours, that's bringing this about. The spirit who is in us is giving life to our mortal bodies. 
and transforming us into something glorious. He says to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul's talking about the resurrection there. When Jesus comes, we await a Savior. We await Jesus in his second coming who will transform, resurrect our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. Your resurrection requires the power of Jesus' resurrection. What's already been done. The good news is it happened. The good news, if you follow Jesus, we believe that resurrection has happened already. And that spirit is already in you, empowering you. We believe that power is there already. But it doesn't stop there. Because the dominant view of the New Testament is that your life is not on autopilot. You actually participate in this kind of transformation. 2 Peter 1 says things like, Make every effort. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Romans 8 says, God is on about something in you. In Philippians 1, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. And what we find all over the New Testament is this tension, this dynamic that God is at work in you, so you get to work and join with God. Look at Philippians 2. Notice the tension here and what Paul writes about our participation. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You, get to work. Work out your own salvation. Obey. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See that tension? God's at work, and so you need to be at work. God was at work long before you, enabling you to not sit back and on autopilot let things happen to you, but enabling you to join with him in that work. And third, it takes practice. Power, participation, practice. I feel like a good old Southern Baptist preacher with my alliteration today. You guys impressed? This never happens. You better remember these three things because they all start with a P. Power, participation, and practice. Often, to many of the churches Paul writes to, he says things like put on and put off. That there's a physical, daily, regular, rhythmic action. This way of communicating to us that this kind of change doesn't just happen just like you don't just get dressed in the morning because it happens on its own. You don't have magical shirts that form to your body. But you go and slip on your shirt, your pants, your socks, your shoes, whatever. And this, this word he uses, put on, enduyo, is that image of you just slipping into clothing. A regular practice that you have. He says in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to gratify the flesh, to gratify its desires. According to Paul, these things don't just happen to us because we want them to. We have to engage this kind of process of change and transformation. Put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Something has happened once and for all. Jesus has saved us and brought us into the family, and we now engage in a lifelong journey of transformation to become like him from the inside out, conforming to his image, his glorious resurrected image. And this is why Paul ends this chapter with this one line. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is how he ends the chapter. Not saying sit back, revel, bask in the resurrection, just put on your seatbelt and hold on till you die, it'll all get better eventually. It's not escapism, it's engaging with God in the work that he is doing not only around the world and bringing about his kingdom, but engaging with God in the work he's doing in you to make you look more like the you that's going to be resurrected. That happens to look a whole lot like Jesus. And that labor, Paul says, is not in vain. It's not useless. It's not futile. It's not pointless. The work we do now has impact on the lives we will live forever. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, firm, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is not in vain. It carries over. Your journey of sanctification and obedience, purity, holiness, righteousness, these things are not in vain because they prepare you to be the kind of person you're becoming. So the call from the text today is simple. It's to become who you are. It's to become who you are. Someone living in light of his and your resurrection every single day. And to do that, we engage with the Holy Spirit and his power that raised Jesus. We participate with him. And we practice day by day, putting on...